All right, if you'll take your Bibles this evening and turn to uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, we do want to uh, continue with our study in Genesis tonight. title of our message is Declarations from a Deathbed. Now we've uh, really are, are continuing uh, where we left off uh, in our last message uh, uh, concerning uh, what was taking place here in chapter 49. It was a time that had come for Jacob to die. His 147 years had been an eventful and very difficult time. Yet uh, they were blessed years. When he leaves this world, he, or before he leaves the world, he is going to gather his sons to his bedside. And uh, we talked about uh, some of that last time in our study here. Uh, in these verses, Jacob addresses his sons in light of the future, tells them what uh, will come their way in the last days. It's a reference to the kingdom years of Israel. You look there in chapter 49, it says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Now, the details of Jacob's prophecy to each of his sons as they stood by his bedside is kind of amazing, and it's amazingly accurate. Uh, in fact, this passage is probably been one of the favorite passages for Bible critics. They cannot believe that these words were uttered before the events were, uh, that were described took place. Uh, they say, well, this must be written after it all took place because it's so accurate. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a God who is very accurate, and uh, His Word is accurate. And these prophecies and their accurate fulfillment tells or stands as one of the greatest proofs for the inspiration of the Word of God. Now, how did Jacob know things that would take place hundreds of years uh, after his death? Well, the Holy Ghost told him. And as we examine the words of Jacob, we want to continue to see. Now, I mentioned this last time. Uh, we noted that uh, uh, as we consider Jacob's words, uh, his sons could be divided into three groups. Some were disqualified because of their sin. Some of these boys were destined for judgment and not blessing. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Dan. Uh, some were distinguished, some of Jacob's sons destined for blessing down uh, through the ages, and God would take uh, some of these men who mostly were uh, insignificant in the family and evaluated them in places of, or elevated, excuse me, to places of prominence in their future kingdom. Um, men like Judah and Zebulon, Issachar, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin. But one was different. And that was Joseph. He stood out among his brethren, uh, singled out as a word of special blessing by his father, and uh, he was set apart. Now, if you remember, uh, we said that concerning the words of Jacob, uh, and in verse uh, 2, he says, Hear ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. I pointed this out last time, but for some of you that were not here, or maybe some of you that slept since last time, uh, you forgot that I said it. But uh, anyway, uh, you remember Jacob is the old man's birth name. means heel grabber, trickster, supplanter. And uh, it, it identifies Jacob in the flesh. 
And uh, for the years he did live, uh, for years he did live a fleshly life. Uh, He was always out to better himself. He was always trying to gain the advantage over others. And then one night, of course, Jacob met the master. And when he did, his life was changed forever. His name was changed as well. No longer was he called Jacob. Uh, His new name was Israel, which means prince with God. And it pictures him as a man of faith who walks with God, and that is who Jacob became in later years. And so when he calls his sons to him, and he calls them the sons of Jacob, I think he's telling them, you boys are just like I was. You have a sinful fleshly nature to overcome. You have a sin problem to deal with. And that's what we talked about, especially in our message last time, in talking about the first several of these fellows. And uh, we talked about the common sin problem that runs through every person, even in this room tonight. We all have a problem with sin. And uh, the question is, how do we deal with that then? So we've looked at Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And so we're going to pick up uh, Jacob's deathbed declarations from there. And so we want to look, first of all, at, at... Calling all cars. Jordan. (laughs) What do you do with this? Do you suck the juice out of these batteries when I'm not looking? Oh boy, then we're in trouble. Jordan, you might want to go get my, my uh, plug-in, or we're not going to make it through the mess. It's in my office there. How could that be? All right. Well, we'll have to move on. We'll catch up with him later. We'll just look at uh, the first one is Zebulon, verse 13. Zebulon. Verse 13, it's amazing when your computer talks to you and you can't even see it talking to you. It talks to you up there and not down here. But uh, Zebulun, the zealous ones, we're going to call him the, the zealous ones, all right? Uh, his tribe anyway, the zealous ones. Look at verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea and he shall be for a ha- an haven of ships and his border shall be unto Zidon. Uh, Zebulun was, uh, shall dwell in the haven of the sea, or actually toward the seashore. Uh, Zebulun, I think uh, we'd, we would uh, characterize him as zealous, especially in business matters, uh, his people being maritime traders. Uh, the famous trade route, uh, the Vias Mars, uh, the... In, which meant the way of the sea, was located in Zebulun. Now, when we talk about Zebulun, we're talking about a person. We're also talking about a tribe, and we're also talking about a location of where they lived. So uh, we, uh, when we talk about Zebulun, uh, that's, uh, we have to think of that. The route extended uh, from Egypt to Damascus. It was heavily involved in commercial trade. Uh, it was located on a popular trade route between two seas, uh, and this is 
uh, was the only prophecy describing a, a specific territory. Uh, come right on up here, Jordan, and let's get this thing set. Uh, don't be bashful. Uh, maybe if you walk the aisle, somebody else will too. Uh, that one goes down here. And this one we'll put around here. Maybe. Did that disappear? It sure did. Ah, it likes that one. Okay. Put that down as a lesson. Don't try to get all day through Sunday on one battery. Now, the most famous Zebunite of the Bible was a man by the name of Elon. Elon, who judged Israel for 10 years. You find that in Judges chapter 12. Uh, Zebulun demonstrated their zeal for the Lord in going to battle, and uh, this battle took place in the valley of Jezreel, located there in Zebulun. And this is the, also the future site of the battle of Armageddon. Uh, when Reuben and Dan and Asher were summoned to the battle, they failed to respond. But Zebulun and Naphtali jeopardized their lives unto death. And it's interesting to note that the area of Zebulun included Nazareth and Canaan, Cana of, uh, of Galilee. Zealous ones for the Lord came from this region. Now, can you say, think of some zealous... Uh, men who came from Nazareth and Cana of Galilee. Well, it would be 11 of the 12 disciples came from Galilee. And I think zeal is good. It's a good quality to have, don't you? But, and you, th you can probably think of somebody that had a lot of zeal, of one of the disciples, that would be Peter. He was zealous. But it got him into trouble sometimes. Now, I read of a Christian man who had great zeal, and he tried to witness to his customers. He was a barber. And one day he lathered up a customer for a shave, and then he came to him with a poised razor and said, Are you prepared to meet your God? Well, the frightened man fled, and his lather on his face, and he made a run for it. I think... You know, we need to ask for wisdom sometime to say the right thing when we witness to others. It's good to have zeal. Uh, but I think we need to have wisdom uh, when we're talking to others about the Lord. I thought about this re recently as we were flying to and from our vacation. Uh, would it be wise in our present world with threats of terrorism to ask a person on an airplane or in an airport, you know, if you were to die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? You know, they might say, uh, they might call an alert, you know, on you. Say, this guy's uh, threatening to kill everybody. You know, if you were to die today, we ask that question. Um, I, I was uh, uh, sitting uh, there in the, an airplane in, in the airport talking to a woman, and, and I didn't really witness to her. I thought, she seems like a fine Christian lady and, and uh, seemed to be... Uh, know the Lord, and then I realized it was my wife. But, um, you know, I think we need wisdom uh, to, uh, when we witness. We need zeal, we need, uh, we need uh, boldness, but we need to be careful how we 
approach people sometimes. So Zebulon represents the zealous ones. Now we go to the next one, and that's the industrious ones, Issachar. Look at verse 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. And he saw that that rest was good in the land that was pleasant and bowed his uh, shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Issachar is compared to a, a donkey bearing burdens. Now, this is not an insult, but it's a compliment. You know, I think sometimes we think donkeys are not very smart and they're, you know, they're, but they were the beast of burden for them in those days. Uh, they were very valuable Valuable animals for service. And this label compares to the meaning of his name, which means hire or wages. Uh, the tribe was a hardy, hardworking, and vibrant tribe. Uh, their inheritance included the fertile lands of the valley of Jezreel, which was abundant in food. And Issachar was valiant in, in their battles, and they had enemies to fight because of their land. Issachar was praised for their powerful assistance in the times of the judges. And so they were survivors, kind of like a donkey. Donkeys have a great ability to survive in the desert, I understand. And when food is scarce, they live on thorns and thistles. Uh, donkeys are intelligent too, believe it or not, they are. The tribe of Issachar was known for its knowledge of God's word and the world. Now, I know this doesn't have much to do with Issachar, but when I think of donkeys, I can't help but think of Festus Hagen. Now, he rode a mule. It's not exactly a donkey, but it's in the donkey family, okay? But in a recitation about his mule, by the name his mule's name was, anybody know? Ruth. Old Ruth. And uh, he, he would say this, My favorite was a long-eared Jenny. Now I reckon you'll think I'm a ninny because I loved her just like I loved my mother. She was faithful, stout, and she was smart. And friend, she had lots of heart. And if you'd been a man, I'd loved her like a brother. Now he was telling the story of how he used his mule to retrieve dead soldiers from the battlefield. And even though they made it safely back to camp, the mule had been hit by gunfire and died that evening. And so he called every mule, male or female, by the name of Ruth. I say this to point out that he described his mule as faithful, stout, and she was smart, and she was a friend, and she had lots of heart. Now, I realize that Festus Hagen was a fictional character. But my point is that if a mule or a donkey can be described as faithful and stout and smart and a friend, how much more should you and I have that description? You know, if a, if a donkey could be called that, how much more should we have those characteristics in our lives? Thirdly, we have Dan, the dragon-like ones. Verse 16 says... Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. Jacob's prophecy concerning the Danites is that they're going to judge their people as one of the tribes of Israel, and like a serpent like has serpent-like characteristics. Uh, the word Dan means judgment. And the prophecy of judging was 
partially fulfilled by the time of Samson. He judged Israel in the time of the judges, and he was cunning, and he struck quickly like a serpent against the Philistines. Now, Dan's serpent-like qualities have been compared also to Satan. The serpent of Eden and the actual serpent of Palestine was known as the horned viper. Now, this snake hides in the way of footprints of animals or men in the desert. It kind of lays half buried in the sand awaiting the arrival of its prey. And it's a highly irritable snake with a dreaded venomous bite. Now Satan's influence was very powerful in the tribe of Dan. The Danites moved northward and conquered the town of Laish and renamed it Dan. A Levite from the tribe of Ephraim joined them and brought idols from the house of Micah. And this Levite became their high priest and he led them away from the Lord into idolatry. Jeroboam set up two golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. And so the Danites were prone to rebellion against God and easily irritated or swayed against the Lord as the horned viper was easily provoked. A stigma seems to have plagued this tribe of Dan throughout its history. Now, verse 18 has very little to do with Dan, but perhaps Jacob at this point is expressing uh, weariness, and, and yet with faith he waited for the deliverance of the salvation of God. It says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. And so we move to the next one, and that is the gallant ones, Gad. The gallant ones. Verse 19. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Jacob here is prophesying that Gad would be harassed by hostile enemies, but would eventually overcome them. They were a warrior-like tribe located on the east side of the Jordan rivers, and they were fierce because their enemies were fierce. Uh, Their neighbors The Ammonites and the Moabites were a constant source of trouble. Ever have a neighbor who was a constant source of trouble? Ever had that kind of a neighbor? Uh, If you've probably lived in the same place you've lived all your life, you probably have made all, you know, you've got good neighbors now and you've, you've got everything ironed out between you and them, but you've never, you don't have. But if you move around like we do, we have different neighbors. And sometimes the neighbors aren't so nice. Now, thankfully, we most of the time have had good neighbors. Uh, but, you know, sometimes neighbors can be like that. Co-workers can be that way. Classmates can be that way. Troublesome. And the Philistines uh, vexed them, too, because of their constant threat of enemy attack. They had to be constantly on alert and ready for battle at the moment's notice. I think sometimes our neighbors got a little irritated us, especially when our kids were little, and uh, they would throw the baseball against the neighbor's garage, and he'd come out and say, too many bumps on the garage, you know, he was an old Italian, and he would come complain about our kids throwing the ball against his garage. But you know, sometimes our neighbors aren't the friendliest, and sometimes uh, we, we bring on things ourselves. But here we have the neighbor's of the Gadites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites were a constant source of trouble. 
And this is what Peter tells us also in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, this is the reason why we should be sober, we should be vigilant. Uh, we have an ever-active, subtle enemy to contend with. He walketh about. I think that means he has access to us. He knows our feelings. He knows our, uh, uh, the way we, we think many times. I think he informs himself of our circumstances. Now, only God can know and do more than Satan can. And so we cast our care upon him, for he careth for us. But we need to be careful. And so we have the gallant ones, Gad. A troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Then number five, we have the abundant ones. This is the tribe of Asher. Verse 20, out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Now the future of Asher was to be abundant. It was to be fruitful according to Jacob, and fruitful it was. Now the responsibility of each tribe was to provide for the king's needs for one month. And excellent gourmet delights would come from this tribe. They really knew how to put on a spread. Uh, Most of the olive oil in Israel comes from this area, so uh, they were probably always cooking with olive oil, and that was always healthy, right? Uh, But uh, uh, they they knew how to to cook and to provide a, a, a tremendous meal. Materials and workmen were provided from Tyra of Asher for David's home. Royal dainties not only included food, but the building materials. And the abundance of Asher provided refreshment for others. The city of Sidon was located in Asher. It was here where the widow of Zarephath ministered unto Elijah. Paul was strengthened in Sidon, the home of a man by the name of Julius in Acts chapter 27. And the most famous Asherite was a prophetess named Anna who greeted the baby Jesus in the temple. And it tells us that in Luke chapter 2. And yet, there were no famous heroes from this tribe. And I would say this, you don't have to be a hero, especially in, this, in the world's eyes, to be abundantly used of God. You can be used of God to be an encouragement to others. The abundant ones. Then number six, you have the noble ones, Naphtali. Verse 21, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. A hind is a female red deer known for its speed and agility and nimbleness and alertness and watchful care over its young. Their feet stood firm in the dangerous places. The tribe of Naphtali demonstrated these traits throughout history. In Judges chapter 4, we find Barak of the name of the tribe of Naphtali rushing swiftly to battle the forces of Sisera, jeopardizing their lives. And Barak's name means lightning, which is also associated with swiftness. Now, we also see in this verse that Naphtali did give goodly words. The victory song of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5 is beautiful, it's eloquent. Most of the disciples were from this region of Israel. They carried the gospel swiftly as a hind let loose. Their 
feet stood firm in dangerous places as they give, were given a watchful care to the message they received from the Lord. And you say, well, but preacher, I thought all the disciples abandoned the Lord when He was crucified. Yes, but we know as they realized that He had risen from the dead, that he had prom- as He promised He would do, they received the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives and they became the most faithful proclaimers of the Word of God. They stood firm, even unto death, and most of them had been martyred for the cause of Christ. And so we have Naphtali, the noble ones. And then we have Joseph. That brings us to Joseph and the jubilant ones. Joseph, whose future was to be a faithful one, a fruitful one, according to his father's insight here, he was as a fruitful bough by the well with branches spreading over the wall indicated his strength and his growth. Joseph produced two tribes in Israel, in Ephraim and Manasseh. And of the thirteen judges, five of them were from Ephraim. Those five were Gideon, Abimelech, Jair, Jephthah, and Samuel. Another important leader from Ephraim was Joshua. We're studying Joshua in our adult Sunday school class. But Joshua's descendants played a major role in Israel's history, of course. Look at uh, verses 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a wall, by a well, excuse me, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by God, the God of thy father, who shall help thee and by the mighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Now you can tell already just by the amount of words that Jacob uses here for Joseph, he is a fruitful, he was to be fruitful. He was to be greatly blessed. Now, let me make another observation from this passage. And and I think it's the frequency which which God is mentioned here. A God who's called the mighty God. He's called the shepherd. Uh, he's called the stone of Israel. He's called the God of thy father. And then notice also in this passage, he's called the Almighty. And so God is referred to five times here in association with Joseph. Uh, I don't like to get carried away with what some may call numerology, but I do believe God is interested in numbers. Five is the number of God's grace in the Scripture. And when we study Joseph's life, we can see over and over, and we've been spending quite a bit of time talking about Joseph's life. And over and over, we saw God's grace and the care of God in his life. And through all the trials, Joseph saw God's hand in his life. God was Joseph's Shaddai. That was the word for Almighty, the All-Sufficient One. It comes from a Hebrew word, 
shad, which refers to the mother's breast, the place of nourishing and comfort and rest and sustaining. And that's what the Lord did for Joseph. The tribe of Joseph was fruitful. It was jubilant because God's care in their lives. Now, unfortunately, they took God's care for granted, and you and I do too as well. We often take God's care for granted, don't we? But Joseph's tribe, his people, took God's care for granted eventually, and they forsook the Lord, and they began to follow idols. And when we take God's care for granted, and we think that, you know, I can make it through life on my own, then we have forsaken God, and the things of this world become that which is worth the most to us. What is worth the most to us then becomes an idol, and we begin to worship it. That which is most important to us. You say, well, I would worship idols. But if something's more important to us than God, we're beginning to worship it. What is the most important thing in your life? Is it your house? Is it your car? Is it your job? Is it your collection? Is it your stuff? Be careful. All those things can become idols to us. And we begin to worship them and they become because they become worth more than God does. The jubilants, jubilant ones, Joseph. And then we come to number eight, the brutish ones. And that's Benjamin. Verse 27 says, Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Jacob indicates that his youngest son would have wolf-like characteristics. I'm not talking about wolf-like characteristics of, of modern-day uh, myths and, and uh, uh, werewolves and that kind of thing. But he would have some wolf-like characteristics. He would raven as a wolf. You know, some of the characteristics, and perhaps you know this better than I do, some of you who've, who've been out in the woods and you've perhaps seen them and watched them and so forth, tracked them down, but they're persistent, aren't they? And they're fierce, uh, and they're bold, and they're crafty, and they're ravenous. Raven means to seize by violence and devour with eagerness and consume with greediness. And that describes what a wolf will do to its prey. Though the tribe of Benjamin was one of the smallest tribes, it was a fierce tribe, like a wolf. They had to be in order to survive in the cities like Jericho and Bethel and Mizpah and Jerusalem. It's also interesting that the temple was located within the tribe of Benjamin. But throughout Benjamin's history, we find some very fierce people. Ehud, E-H-U-D, Ehud was the second judge of Israel. He was used of God to assassinate Eglon, the king of Moab, who oppressed Israel for 18 years. In Judges chapter 20, there was a civil war that broke out in Israel. Eleven tribes attacked Benjamin. The first two days of the battle, Benjamin inflicted 40,000 casualties with the aid of 700 left-handed stone slingers. I guess those lefties are good for something, aren't they? Well, they finally were overcome on the third day with all but 600 destroyed. 
And other bold Benjamites include Saul. He was a warrior king. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Sheba, who uh, led a rebellion against David. Mordecai and Esther, we know those names, don't we? They were Benjamites. They were used of God, though, to deliver the Jews from Haman and the Persian law. How about the Apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians before he was saved, and then he became a valiant Christian warrior for God? I think those are some interesting facts about these sons of Jacob. Now, look at verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this it is, this is it that their father spake unto them and blessed them. Every one according to his blessing, he blessed them. We can learn from these tribes. These sons of Jacob, these lessons can be applied to our lives as Christians. Notice the names of these tribes and how they remind us of some different aspects of the Christian life, and even of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just want to go quickly through them. But first, Reuben. He was the firstborn, wasn't he? And salvation is in the Son of Man, Jesus, the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, of of God. And our relationship with God begins with Christ. The beginning. Notice Simeon. His name means hearing. We're to listen to the Lord, and if... We are to spiritually grow. We've got to listen to the, 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 God's Word. Now, the cruelty of Simeon reminds us of the cruelty of the cross, I believe. Then there's Levi. His word means attached, or his name means attached. We're joined to the Lord, and we have fellowship with Him, and we have fellowship with other believers. After we've heard God's Word, we've obeyed it, we've trusted Christ as our Savior, And Christ became a curse for us that we might have eternal life. There's Judah. Remember Judah, he confessed his sin. We talked about that. And to confess your sin is to agree with God about your sin and keep a right relationship with God so you can be effectively used of God for His glory. Then we come back to Zebulun. Uh, We're able to abide in Christ for without Him we can do nothing. He was zealous. But without Jesus Christ, all of the zeal in the world won't do any good because without Jesus, we cannot do anything. And we're able to do that because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Again, there's Issachar. He was a servant. That's what we're to do. We're to be a servant. We're to serve the Lord who was a suffering servant, the Lord Jesus. There's Dan, which reminds us his name means judgment. Christ is our judge. Believers will judge the world and angels as well. And we're reminded to also judge ourselves lest we be judged. Then there's Gad, who was the overcomer, remember? We are overcomers and we're more than conquerors through him that loved us and gave himself for us. You see, there's no excuse for spiritual defeat in our lives. We are overcomers. We've already won the victory because Christ overcame sin and death. He won the victory. Then there's Asher. And joy and happiness comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The royal dainties that the Lord gives us is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, meekness, long-suffering, temperance, everlasting life, 
an inheritance in heaven. And we have every reason in the world to be the most happy people there are. There's Naphtali. Believers wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of Satan. And Christ has brought us goodly words by giving us the message of forgiveness of sin and salvation. There's Joseph. Remember, his characteristic was fruitful. We are to be fruitful. We're to be known by our fruit. We're to add a number of traits to our faith according to 1 Peter chapter 1. And the Word of God will play a vital role in the spiritual growth and the winning of others to Christ. And then there's Benjamin. His name means son of my right hand. His original name was son of my sorrow. You remember we talked about that this morning. Benoni is what Rachel wanted to name him. But he was named son of my right hand, Benjamin. And so in Christ we see the man of sorrow who was acquainted with grief now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And of course that was the result of his glorious resurrection which we have been mindful of today. Now look at the last several verses here of this chapter. We close this chapter. Verse 29 says, And he charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham Abraham brought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field and of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghosts and was gathered unto his people. And so we have Jacob dying here after giving his sons instructions to bury him in the cave of Machpelah, where his forefathers had been buried. These were the final recorded words in the scripture about Jacob. Right here. You don't hear about Jacob anymore. May God help us to learn some lessons from God's chosen people. Now these people weren't perfect, we know, were they? There's no one here that's perfect either, is there? We all have imperfections. We all have the problem of sin to deal with. But you know, as we grow in the Lord, we do so by taking heed to His Word, by obeying it, by keeping our hearts clean through the confession of sin. And God can then use us for His glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for this.